This week, a special edition of the show discussing the situation in Afghanistan with Matt Bennett. You don't want to miss it. But first, an important message. If you're a regular listener to this show, we wanted to say thank you. Without the Lord's help and without you, we wouldn't still be doing this. But we also want you to know that this show wouldn't exist if it weren't for ABWE International and ABWE missionaries like Justin, who's a missionary in a Muslim country in Asia. So let me tell you about him. One day, he was wandering a crowded street doing street evangelism. He'd been doing it every morning for nine months with no results. He was discouraged. He sat down at an outdoor coffee shop. Local men crowded the table, fraternizing before the start of the workday. Justin tried to start a spiritual conversation with the Muslim man seated next to him, and the man, disinterested, walked off. But before Justin could even process the rejection, he heard a voice speaking to him in broken English. The voice said, you said sins forgiven, how? It was another Muslim man who had been sitting next to him who was listening silently the whole time. Justin, knowing the dangers of doing evangelism openly in this country, started to whisper to him about Jesus. They crept closer and closer until they were inches apart. They were looking around for danger the whole time. Justin whispered the gospel into this man's ear. And the man grabbed him by the shoulders, pushed him back and said, many of us want to know this message, but we're not allowed to ask. That's what life is like in a country where evangelism is illegal, and more than 130 ABWE workers like Justin are serving in places like this. Every gift to ABWE's Global Gospel Fund goes to critical staffing, support, training, and services to advance the gospels of the lost and unreached through faithful workers like Justin. So learn more and become a partner with ABWE at abwe.org partner. That's abwe.org partner. Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Copeland, Director of Advancement and Communication with ABWE. Joined in the flesh, in person, live from the campus of Cedarville University. Well, not live. Live for us. We're here live. This is happening right now in our world. Yeah, feels feels very live. Yeah. Uh, with Scott Dunford, who needs no introduction, let's be honest. And with someone else who also needs no introduction, but since we're not always doing video, people might not recognize your face. We've got Matt Bennett here, who, what is your official title? Uh, professor of uh, Missions and Theology here at Cedarville. President of Cedarville University? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, yes, just, don't tell Dr. White. All right, I'll, I'll, I won't. Okay. I promise <laughs> I won't. <laughs> so glad to have you here, Matt. And uh, Matt's been on the show how many times? Oh, many times. Honorary third co-host. He's, he's, he's one of the guys that anytime you call us, you get on the show. So uh, we're really happy to have you on here in person and for people to actually see how uh, photogenic you are. We were both commenting on that. You know, you're looking I need to pick me up some pink pants. I feel bad for people that are just li listening on audio right now. They're not enjoying this. But. Yeah, I was telling Scott, I wore my podcast pants because I didn't know that they were going to be represented. Perfect. Uh, perfect. <laughs> so used to all those Zoom meetings in 2020. Yeah, Nobody right. would be able to see you below the waist. Yeah. So, now, uh, why don't you introduce yourself real quick and just explain what you do here, and then, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll tee it off. Yeah, so uh, I came from uh, North Africa and the Middle East about four years ago, uh, where we were doing church planning work and uh, evangelism work among the majority Muslim comp uh, uh, population, and uh, came to take a role here at Cedarville where I get to teach missions and theology. And uh, if you know anything about Cedarville, it's a place where missions is embedded in pretty much every classroom, whether you're taking uh, vocational 
normal trajectory of being a, an engineer or a nurse or whether you're studying the Bible formally. And so this has just been a really wonderful landing place to kind of stoke the fires of missions in yeah. a lot of different students. And when we were asking you about what professors are be good people to talk to about missions, the list of people that aren't in theology or missiology that you recommended to us was impressive. And uh, I appreciate that about Cedarville for sure. So everyone that's tuning into the news can't get away from what's going on in Afghanistan. And I'm not going to ask you necessarily to comment on Afghanistan. That's not really your area. Um, but something that's on my mind and my heart as I'm thinking about Afghanistan is I've got a really good friend uh, that uh, she, she just got back from, from, the, from the Hazar uh, people group area of Afghanistan. And at, and at the time, it, you know, she wasn't worried and they didn't seem to be worried. They were probably the most security that people group had ever had in the last you know few hundred years of, of Afghanistan's uh, rule because they're a minority people group they're a Shiite people group that have always kind of been subjugated and uh, by the majority um, population and it kind of highlights you know one of the of the tensions with Islam that I think is confusing a lot of times to Christians is this tension between um, different rival groups so here we have the Sunnis and Shiites the Taliban are Sunnis the Hazar people are Shiites and what why you would see this this uh, this conflict so what we want to ask you today because uh, you're kind of our, our resident Muslim expert uh, and you know certainly you know you you understand you've lived there but also understand the Quran very well and have studied this a lot what can you help us understand like what are some of these tensions that are there why is there within even within Islam sometimes like this strife yeah I think a lot of times it's easy for us especially from a distance to look at the distinct sects and kind of identify them as being at odds with one another and so we kind of attribute any of these tensions to Shia versus Sunni. I think uh, more than more than looking at the sects though, I think the, the thing that's driving some of the tension is those radical groups that are popping out of Islam, coming out of both sects, predominantly out of Sunni, uh, Sunni traditions, sort of the Wahhabist direction um, and those who have taken more of a literal and um, uh, even militant uh, form of Islam. Uh, I think it's it's really as those sects develop a more distinct and, and radical understanding of themselves, they begin to further splinter from within the communities that they're coming out of. And so whether it's Shia or Sunni, there's a sense of we're doing it right and everybody else is doing it wrong. Almost like uh, something you might read in the scriptures about Pharisees and Sadducees and sure. groups of people who have define themselves by their own abilities to interpret and apply their holy texts. And so then as they further define themselves in those ways, they then also become more uh, more antagonistic to groups that are unlike them. So I think that's what you're seeing with the Taliban is this group that's setting themselves apart and saying we are the, the right arbiters of what is good Islam and we're the ones who get to determine it and now we're in power so we have the authority and the capacity right. to do that. Scott and I were talking about this on the car ride over so we'll uh, throw this at you see if you agree. I heard somebody say the other day that the sects within Islam it's a bit like the medieval church minus the papacy. So there's traditions, there's entrenched, they're, they're not all organized, mm -hmm, school, mm -hmm. but they're schools of thought, sure. right? Because there's a difference between a school of thought and a movement. You know, one might have a leader, one might not, but there's sure. all these different sects, but what you don't have is, you know, a magisterium. 
to bring that right. continuity. I mean, is that a good yeah. analogy? Or? Yeah, I think you could say that uh, maybe some of these movements, like a Wahhabist movement, will spawn sects that have a sort of a personality at the center of it so that they de facto become the leaders. And But you're right, there's not necessarily a you know, papal succession that can be followed. So it's sort of a popular movement that will turn into a, a sect that will be surrounded uh, surrounding a particular personality. So is it about religion? Is it about power? Is it about both? <laughs> Culture? Yes. Another one? <laughs> I, think, I think both. I think uh, well, all three. Yeah, I think more often than not, the driving factors in some of these radical groups are a sense of wanting to develop an identity for themselves and then give it a veneer of religious endorsement. And so there's power bound up in it, there's control bound up in it, and there's a, a sense of being on the right side of history, the right side of God versus uh, humanity. Now, the one thing that I think is actually, I, don't, I hesitate to say an advantage, but as we hear the, the prayer requests coming from our brothers and sisters in places like Afghanistan, you're hearing them ask for the Lord to, by his mercy, stay some of the extent of the violence. And that's definitely a prayer request that they're regularly asking for. But beyond that, I think they're also seeing this as an opportunity to pray that the, the beauty of the gospel might stand in more direct contrast to the darkness of the Taliban. And so as the Taliban gets this authority and gets this focus, this role of leadership, it actually can provide an opportunity to give a true vision of how hopeless and hollow Islam, as practiced by those who say we're the exemplars are, yeah. and, and can make the gospel shine. I have a follow-up question with that, because you're, since you're going down that road, so, and you're right, I think what we're seeing is two false gods duking it out, and they're both false, but one is stronger than the other. So secularism and this idea of nation building with, you know, the fruits of Christendom without the gospel, right? We're going to just drop democracy in the Middle East and see how it does. Well, you, you don't have centuries, millennia of, of the, the influence of the gospel, uh, whether or not you have true conversion or not, but you, you don't even have any of that, you know, yeast leavening the lump there. Um, but you're seeing the false god of, of secularism bow to the false god of Islam. Um, but the reason we talked about some of the tribes and the, the sects earlier is because I'm wondering, and, and Scott, I'm even curious for you being in the Bay Area and being surrounded by so many Afghans, um, for, for our listeners who might not be aware, Fremont, California leads the nation in the largest number of, of Afghans in the country. Um, are people watching this, Muslims in the U.S., others you know, who are expats from countries like Afghanistan, are they watching this play out and are they likely to become disillusioned with Islam? Or are they just disillusioned with that sect? Not disillusioned with Islam, just saying like, well, but they don't really understand the Quran. So is it an open door for the gospel or not as much as maybe we'd hope? And I don't know, maybe it depends. Scott, I'd be interested on your thoughts, particularly as it pertains to that subgroup in the US. Yeah. I I don't know that I can speak to that. Uh, a lot of times in, in Fremont, because yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm walking distance from Little Cobble. I mean, they call that they call that street Little Cobble. But but uh, the Afghans have been in Fremont for so long 
that they're really just very integrated and in Fremont such a diverse place that you don't just walk down the street and go oh you know they're from India they're from Afghanistan they're from you know it's hard to tell <laughs> where, where people are coming from especially the Afghan community is so established now that um, you know they you know they're they're, they're, so, you, you, you don't, they don't stand out in a way that you would quickly know. Yeah. Although now with protests, we're seeing more of that. So I don't, I don't yeah. know exactly what they think. I will say, can I just say one more thing though? Like, yes. I've got a number of Uyghur friends and I've been spending more and more time with them. And I actually, w one of the guys, we were, we were, I was at an event and uh, he did not know I was a Christian pastor. And he said, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a Christian pastor. And, uh, and he's like, you know what? He goes, I love Christians. He said, they're the only people that are standing up for us right now. And because they're, they're watching, even in Turkey, they're extraditing Uyghurs back to China. And uh, it just breaks, you know, like it's so frustrating to them. And he's like, you know, with the, the Southern Baptists actually we had a resolution uh, condemning the genocide of the Uyghurs. And all of them know about it and are super excited. And uh, uh, they know about the SBC resolution. Oh, yeah. They follow all that stuff. So they were thrilled. You know, like the largest Protestant denomination in America condemned it. You know, so those kind of things do definitely open up a door for the gospel. I, I would say uh, to, it may not be an exact comparison because in a place like Egypt, you've got a little bit more homogenous population than probably some of the tribalism that you've got going on in Afghanistan that's going to uh, alter some of the perception of what's going on. But in, in Egypt in uh, you know 2013, what we saw was the ascendance of the Muslim Brotherhood to yeah. a place of power where they were voted in in um, free and fair election. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> Uh, and, and they were put in, in power through a president who was an affiliate. And for a year, this president was running the country and displaying what was supposed to be exemplary Islam. And all of the community was watching him just kind of continually tank the country farther and farther down, giving, uh, giving money that should have gone to the people of Egypt to support uh, Palestine and, and Hamas, particularly there. And they were continually getting more and more disenchanted not only with his leadership, but they said, this is supposed to be an exemplar of Islam. This is a man who is studied and learned. And even if he comes from maybe a different madhab than I come from, a different school of thought, um, there, there's still a sense in which he's representative of the best of the best. And my goodness, you go to Egypt today, and particularly the younger generations are very willing to have conversations where they're asking questions about who God is and who Muhammad it is and what the Quran has to offer to their expression of Islam today in ways that they wouldn't have dared to voice those questions in the past. And I think there is a sense in which when you see the exemplars exhibit the hopelessness of the, yeah. the best of the best, yeah. it does it does provide an environment where people start to become disenchanted and start to be open to asking questions that otherwise they wouldn't dare to. So I, I have another question kind of related to that. On the, uh, really on the flip side, um, I'm so tempted to say I'm curious. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so... Um, you killed the cat. And you did kill it. Uh, you killed it. Uh, what you know, being in, being in, in in the Middle East, maybe you can project a little bit um, toward even Afghanistan. But like, how much does, does U.S. military or 
political actions of Western states, even though we would look and say like, yeah, so much of it isn't Christian and even Christians would condemn a lot of the actions that have been taken and are really distressed by it. How much of that do you think is projected by those peoples as a reflection of Christianity, not just a state actor? Yeah, that's a good question. I'd say there's a couple different realities going on there. There's the perception of America as a nation versus Americans as people. Mm-hmm. At least the places that I've been, people have been very adept at dividing those two. Yeah. And so welcoming and loving towards Americans who they love, while also saying the the international policies and presence of America as a government is something that we're not real thrilled about. Likewise, I think you can make the same comparison to um, you know, people who would look at an American and assume, well, you're the product of a Christian nation, therefore you must be a Christian. There's a little bit more conflation there, mm-hmm. but again, we found that actually being an opportune Uh, opportune mistake that our friends were making because it allowed us to say, when you ask me if I'm a Christian or you assume I'm a Christian, what comes to mind? Because if I'm going to talk to you about what is most central to my identity as a Christian, it's probably going to be quite distinct from the exemplars that you're looking at on American media as, well, those people must be Christians. Like Britney Spears, not the model Christian that we want to put on uh, on display, and yet that's oftentimes the the expectation of what Christians do. So it actually gives you an opportunity to say, well, I live differently than what you see on the movies because the Christianity that I'm embodying is something that is drawn out of the gospel. Can I share that with you? So let's turn it. You've got students, I'm sure, that are interested in ministering to Muslims, potentially going to the Middle East. Uh, Maybe you're having conversations with them as Afghanistan is back in the news, 20th anniversary of 9-11, all those sorts of things. But actually, my college, well, not roommate, dorm mate, I had a good friend in college um, whose life goal was to go to Afghanistan as a missionary, be a Bible translator. Um, he's not doing that. He's working with Afghans in the U.S. right now, actually. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining what that would have been like if he had ended up there right now at this point in time. How would you encourage um, a student, a college student or a seminary student who maybe had been thinking or is still thinking, like, oh, it'd be great to go there you know, and do something someday? What, what encouragements, hopes, exhortations would you be sharing with them? I mean, if somebody was saying, I have a burning passion to go to Afghanistan and I'm inclined to look at the situation there as a closed door to that, I'd say, hold up. First off, you're not getting on a plane tomorrow. There's, there's time in between. But guess who might be getting on a plane and coming to you? A bunch of Afghani refugees. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, there's already a number of cities that are, you know, postured to be uh, refugee recipients and ministries that have been intentionally reaching out to say, hey, if you're interested, please come help us because we're about to receive an influx. I'd say, man, find one of those opportunities. Yeah. Get plugged in here and now. And yeah. who knows what opportunities the Lord's going to open up when it is time time for you to be the one getting on the plane. So I think so much that we miss in missions is the fact of like, well, that place is closed. I can't, I can't go there, so I'm not going to think about that. As opposed to realizing like we should probably be preparing and getting ready for those moments when like a window opens. Like I, I noticed um, 
a, a bunch of the Afghanis that are going to be coming, that were just airlifted out, are going to be in Fort McCoy, mm. Wisconsin, which is where I'm from. Uh. And I've got, you know, all of my extended family lives there. I mean, mm. both sets of grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins, many of them are believers, you know, and saying, get ready. Like, mm -hmm. you need to start be studying up on this stuff. You need to be thinking about how to share the gospel with Muslims. Be really thinking through, you know, like even the theology of how we welcome uh, foreigners and strangers into our communities because God just put uh, this op missions opportunity on in the doorstep of like a remote middle of nowhere part of Wisconsin yeah. that rarely sees, you know, that kind of uh, opportunity. And, um, you know, what's the church they're going to do with it? I don't know. I hope, but I hope that I, I think my family will will have an open heart and step up, and I'm praying that God uses them in that way. But it's really interesting for sure. And I think the, the second follow up to that would be um, while there is opportunity for people to come here, don't, as as Scott was saying, don't assume oh because it's closed right now that means God's saying don't go. Yeah. There really could be opportunities that would come actually by connecting with Afghani refugees yeah. here that could say hey this is actually the guy who's going to be the one to vouch for me to open the door for me to go when I'm supposed to. And so uh, if the Lord isn't allowing you to go right now, figure out what is he sending you into and then have that open handedness to say, Lord, what what are you going to use this for in terms of determining the next step? Um, it it is interesting, you know, you, you hear these stories of the church in countries like China praying for us, right? We pray for them. They say, no, we're praying for you. You know, we're fine. We're being blessed under persecution. You guys are the ones that are asleep and apathetic. Um, I was having a conversation with some family members the other day and talking about what's happening in Afghanistan, contrasting that with some turmoil that some of my family members are seeing in their church. And what's crazy is, you know, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, persecution will inevitably, you know, there's, there's always bearing the cross, but there's a crown on the other side of that, right? Ultimately, what the Taliban is doing will not stomp out the gospel in Afghanistan. It can't. It's incapable of doing that. Um, and yet what's funny is I don't see anything in the New Testament saying that gossip or slander or cattiness, some of the things that happen in our own churches here at home, that any of those things are ever the seed of the church. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That, that sometimes... You just blew my we, mind. We, we, do, we do more harm <laughs> to our own churches through those respectable sins yeah. than the Taliban can do by going door to door and seeing if you have the Bible app on your oh, phone and lighting you on fire. Yeah. Um, and so I think as much as people want to throw themselves at the Middle East and pour themselves out for the sake of believers around the world, and we must do that, right? We should remember those who are suffering as if we're suffering with them, you know, feeling that in our own bodies, like Hebrews says. Um, we've also just got, not exclusively, we have to look outwards, but we should also hold up the mirror a little bit and just say, like, what is my faith made of? Am I discipling my kids in such a way to where... Heaven forbid someday somebody knocks on their door wanting to do something harmful to them if, if they're a believer. Are they, are they prepared to stand for that? I'm looking at the way that I disciple my own children and asking like, am I discipling them to the point of like they can answer my catechism questions and that's my standard of success? Or am I raising the type of children who would someday die for their, day, their, their faith if they had to? I mean, all of these existential things come up. I mean, um, what... What final words of encouragement would you give to some of the students 
that you're just teaching to. I mean, you're teaching class today, right? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I love to tell my students that whatever vocation you're pursuing, God can use it in any location. And so don't determine where he's going to plug you in on the basis of what you're studying or where you're not going to go because of what you're studying. But give him your open-handed yes to whatever he would ask of you and say, Lord, these are the, these are the equippings, the giftings, the passions that I have, and I want to use them in service of pouring myself out for that gospel. And I hope that as they walk through the various classrooms they're in, in the Bible department and all other departments, that what they walk away with is a right valuing of the gospel above all else that will clarify how they pursue their vocational callings in order to lift it, its value high before the nations. And one last thing, what most excites you missions-wise that you see at Cedarville here? Oh man, I mean, another record class of students coming in who are going to get infused over the next thousand days with a vision for saying, your, your life is not your own. The gospel that has won you is something that you are to hold out to those around you in order to make the name of the Lord great. And so uh, every student who passes through here is, is the answer to that question in a lot of ways. Matt, thank you. Thank Grateful you. for you, brother. And uh, thank you today for watching and for listening. To get more content, you can go to missionspodcast.com. This show has been a blessing to you. You can also go to missionspodcast.com slash support. And that helps us offset some of the costs of bringing you this content. But if it's been a blessing to you, share it with a friend. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. That'll help us get this content to more who need to see it. And until next week, thank you for watching.